You're listening to the Truth in Boots podcast. Join me as we search the Bible for truth about our God, for hope to encourage us through hard trials and struggles, and for answers for anyone who questions our faith. The truth of God's Word is not fragile, impractical, and only used on special occasions like a pair of stiletto heels. God's Word, like a pair of sturdy boots, is meant to be put to work daily and is designed to protect us and help us through the mud, streams, and rocks of life. Hi guys, before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that once the Hebrew series is complete, I'll be taking a short break from putting out new episodes. I'm going on vacation and also need some more time to put together a few new series that are coming out this fall and winter. So I just wanted to give you a heads up and without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Truth and Boots podcast. This, can you believe it, is the last episode in the series on Hebrews. It's been a long seven episodes now. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the seventh. <laughs> but um, before I turn the mic on, I was just telling Jamie how it's been amazing for me as I've gone back and edited these episodes. I've noticed this is a, a lesson on how to study God's Word and not necessarily just the book of Hebrews. I mean, even the fact that you spent a year studying this content, it's not how we normally study God's Word. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look up most Bible studies, it's okay, study the book of James in one month. Yes. But to really understand the truths of God's Word, you have to soak in it. You have Mm -hmm. to meditate on it. You have to dig deep and go back to, okay... How did the um, people reading this original epistle understand the Old Testament covenant, understand angels, understand who Moses was? Mm -hmm. And you've just been opening my eyes to, okay, yes, this is how I should be delving in and and taking my time to study through God's word. Right now I'm going through um, Ecclesiastes in my personal devotions, and it's one of those books that I've read through before, but... Never wanted to spend more than a week on it because uh-huh. it is kind of depressing. Uh-huh. But as I spend week after week, I think this is my second or third month in it. Yeah. It's actually kind of amazing how some of these lights are turning on. And it's not a depressing book anymore to me. Yes. It, it's exciting to see how serious Solomon is about the fact that Life is worth nothing unless you spend it dedicated to God's service. Mm -hmm. So that I would not have been able to get if I did not soak in it like you were doing here. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it'll really just transform the way that you look at Bible reading and um, even just what you're thinking about throughout the day and what an impact that has on your faith. Yes, and as we were also chatting beforehand, there's a whole lot of good stuff that does not get on the recording. <laughs> um, sometimes, if especially if it's a heavy content, you only need 10 minutes before you have to turn off what you're listening to and meditate mm-hmm. on the truths that you just heard. So God's Word, even some of the... Um, easier portions to read, like you might consider the Gospels easier to read. But I mean, if we focused on Mark yeah. for a year, the way you've done Hebrews, I, I just, yes, I think we would 
have a whole new understanding of what our Savior went through. Yes. Yes. Well, and something that the book of Hebrews um, has done for me, and you could apply to any book of the Bible, um, is just realizing that each book has a very specific purpose. Mm-hmm. And so as you're studying it, if you are searching for that purpose and then and then connecting everything to that purpose, then everything starts to fall into place. And a book like the Gospels, a lot of times we read it as just very separated little stories. But Mark was wanting us to learn something about Jesus by the stories that he chose to include, the way he chose to write it, um, and just trying to think through that in and of itself will give you a lot of uh, material for meditation. <laughs> yes. So this is the last episode. I know I looked at the outline. You have a lot of good information to give us. So let's jump right in. <laughs> All right. Yes, let's jump right in. And to give a context of what my mind has been dwelling on recently, um, as I've been studying the book of Hebrews, I've actually heard of some friends who have walked away from their faith. And so this it's made it much more personal. What we're studying in the book of Hebrews is so important. And we all know individuals who are in the process of walking away from their faith, just as the writer of Hebrews warns against. And it made me start thinking about the nature of doubt. I think it's really important for us not to just have this nebulous concept in our minds of what is doubt and how how do I even know if I am doubting? And so some things that I've been thinking through in my own life, when I see doubt creeping into my life, it usually takes one of three forms. Usually doubt is associated with feelings rather than thinking. The less I think about scripture, the truth that is in scripture, what God has said in very clear terms, the less my mind is engaged with those things, the more I'm operating off of what does it feel like. And that is going to be a dangerous part, uh, point for anybody to come to when I am operating off of my feelings. Because then I know what God says about X, Y, or Z. But, you know, I really feel like he would be okay with this. I really feel like it would be more enjoyable to do this. I, f- I feel like that person has to... Maybe we're, we're considering the eternal destiny of somebody. And we know it's an unbeliever. They don't claim Christ. But we say, but, you know, I just feel like he's such a good guy. As soon as we start operating on our feelings, we are moving dangerously close to doubt. And that is when the devil is really going to be able to have a foothold. The second way that doubt um, expresses itself is in growing weary of resisting sin in our own lives. We have this faulty view that sin is going to um, become less and less attractive to us the more we're saved, that we're just going to get better and better at resisting our sin. And by the end of our Christian lives, you know, we, we're never going to really feel temptation. But the way that the author of Hebrews presents sin is you are actually going to resist to the point of shedding your blood. That's what Christ did. 
And you, you're going to be resisting sin your entire life. That's why endurance is necessary. That's why he says, don't grow weary or faint hearted. So if we have the idea that it shouldn't be this hard, then we are going to give in to doubts. We have to realize that resisting sin should be hard. If you are having a struggle against sin, good. You're doing something right. If you are giving into your sin and you don't feel that resistance, that's when you should check yourself and and check your interpretation. Go back to reading God's words as we talked about before and seeing exactly what he says about it and making sure that you align with his view of sin. I was thinking about it because, you know, we hear like in Ephesians 6, we talk, we hear about the uh, armor of God and it is so that we can stand against the Satan's darts. What else are Satan's darts if they're not these, these thoughts, these type of thoughts about sin? Like, oh, you know, um, it's not that, it's not that bad or, oh, just give in one time. It'll, it'll be okay. Um. Or even the temptation to reinterpret God's words, um, so that we're so that it's we don't really have to resist sin anymore because we make it so that God's actually okay with this thing that He clearly says He's not okay with. So those are lies from Satan, and we need to combat those lies with truth from God's word. The third way that doubt is um, displays itself is just in going with the flow. Unbelief is the path of least resistance, always. And even though you may have grown up in a church or something like that, and you feel like you're going against that flow, the rest of the culture is pushing you in the opposite direction. And so doubt looks like stopping your your resistance, stopping swimming, and just letting the current take you. And so if, you, if that's what you feel the pressure to do, then that's a that's a pretty clear sign that you are having these doubts that are tempting you away from Christ. All right, so let's jump into the actual passage that's before us today. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 12, verses 3 through um, then all the way through chapter 13. So um, to give us a little bit of immediate context, he's just finished the Hall of Faith, going through the, the list of Old Testament saints who um, lived by faith and were then um, commended by God because of that faith. And that faith was in a promise that they didn't actually receive in their lifetime. They received specific promises from God and that, you know, they received the, um, Abraham received Isaac and and they did have some promises that were answered in their lifetime. But what the author of Hebrews is pointing to is that they actually had their sights on something even further away. And he talks about the fact that they were convinced that they were going to be resurrected. And he talks about this city that whose founder uh, is God. And so that is what our eyes should be on too, that these are the promises that um, are before us, that are set before us, but ultimately that Christ is the one who was set before us. And he, as our forerunner, he has already been through the formula of suffering leads to glory. He has his resurrected body and he is seated at God's right hand. 
And so we can look to him and his example and know that because our forerunner has completed the formula, then our formula will be completed as well. We are in the midst of our suffering, but that this suffering is going to lead to glory. So um, he says in verse three, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So he's going to go into this idea of endurance. So we, we need to have endurance. And one of the ways that you could describe endurance is struggling against sin. And he makes it very clear that this struggle is never going to um, lessen during our lifetime. And that might be a really discouraging thought, but I have actually taken a lot of encouragement from it by what he says in verse four, that that idea of resisting against sin to the point of shedding your blood, who has done that? Jesus, right? Jesus resisted sin perfectly to the very point of, of shedding his blood. And even we could say in a, in a lesser way, the saints that he went through in chapter 11, he describes horrendous deaths that they endured because they refused to give up on Christ and they, and they refused to let go of their faith. And so there are some who are resisting to the point of shedding their blood. Now, of course, we're not doing it perfectly, <laughs> but we should be actually, we should be encouraged by the fact that it is hard to resist sin because it means that we're doing something right. <laughs> if we are not resisting sin, it means that we are giving in to sin. And that is a sign of doubt. And that is something that should cause great alarm to us. If we would say, you know what, it's, it's really not that hard for me. I don't really, I don't really sense that, that, you know, maybe we have re redefined that sin or that temptation so that we don't have to resist it. Maybe we have even completely twisted God's own words about that sin so that we don't feel um, conviction anymore. We can redefine what sin looks like. We can redefine the clear words of God. And that is a, a fearful place to be at. So if you were struggling against sin, don't grow weary. Actually, that's a that's a wonderful sign that you are following in Jesus' footsteps because his whole life was one of resisting sin. He never gave in to that temptation. So he goes straight from that into this discussion on discipline. He quotes actually from the Proverbs, which is really interesting. We don't have very many places in the New Testament where the Proverbs are quoted from, but talking about the discipline of the Lord. And um, he uses this word discipline a lot. And the way I had to like change my thinking about what discipline was. Well, I had to, I, we used this type of discipline in one sense, but in my mind, I always, because he talks about fathers, I'm always thinking about punishment, right? But he, discipline here actually encompasses so much more than just punishment of a specific sin that we did. Even the idea of fathers, but um, it just is much broader than only punishment. So he says, 
my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Okay, so dis- the discipline of the Lord, he's going to, I'm not going to read through the whole section, but he is going to give um, three things that he pulls out about this discipline. And he is, remember, he's connecting it back to this struggle against sin. So the fact that we have to struggle against sin, that it's going to be hard, that it's going to be taxing on us, is a sign that God is disciplining us, okay? So the first thing he says is probably the one that we think of more when we think of discipline. He says that it's proof that you are sons and daughters. If you're receiving this discipline from the Lord, it's proof that you are a son. And he says, I mean, who who goes around disciplining other kids <laughs> who are running around to crazy or whatever, right? You discipline your own son. So if you're not ex- if you're not experiencing this kind of like what we said before, if you're not experiencing the the struggle and the hardship uh, of resisting sin, then you really need to take a serious look into whether you're a son at all. But then he says it's it, you know you understand earthly discipline. And the example that he uses is father to son. We understand that concept, that fathers discipline their sons, and that they they do have a bigger purpose behind their discipline. Some fathers are just authoritarian, and, and the only reason, you know, they just want to keep their kids under their thumb. But most fathers have an end goal in mind in their discipline. They're, they're looking for, I want a self-disciplined son. You know, I want a son who who is not going to end up in jail. Or, well, you know, with, <laughs> hopefully Christian fathers have even more... Um, specific and and more lofty goals for their children. But the illustration that kept coming to my mind that I think we can really relate to is exercise and working out. And so he says, discipline right now, I call it the three P's of discipline because they all start with P (laughs) Um, in the passage. So I didn't have to alliterate this myself. (laughs) He did it. (laughs) He says, all discipline is painful. It is not pleasant but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, right? So um, it made me think of like a, a workout routine. If your workout routine is not painful, then you're doing something wrong and you're not going to get the results that you want. So, I mean, you could go for a walk in the park. That's not very painful. But you're also not going to, to build the, the, you know, biceps that you want from doing a walk in the park, right? You have to have specific workouts to target specific specific muscle groups. Um, and it has to be rigorous enough that you are straining under it. That's how our muscles grow is through that straining. So he says it's going to be painful. It's not going to be pleasant, okay? It would be nice if we could take a walk in the park and then look like uh, you know, a bodybuilder or whatever, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, it, it's pleasant to take a walk in the park and it can be helpful to your health too, but it's not going to produce the effect that weightlifting would do for you. So what is the effect of discipline? Obviously we are not looking for toned muscles, <laughs> uh, bodily, you know, hit physical muscles when we're um, resisting sin. What are we, what is our aim? And he says, what discipline yields is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So this idea that there are future rewards that motivate our present endurance. And we understand this in working out. I am the type that (laughs) 
basically after week one, if I don't see results, then I give up on it. <laughs> but I know in my head that that is illogical, that you have to endure in a workout. You have to, you have to see it all the way through. I'm not going to see the end results in the first week of my workout. And it's the same way with our Christian lives. If we are expecting that, look, I've been resisting sin for three years now. I should be over this. Um, that is unrealistic. And he's saying, no, look to Christ. You're going to have to resist all the way to the point of shedding your blood. But there is a reward that is promised to you. And um, that is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So that brings us back to, okay, so then what is God's purpose in all of this? And this gives us a glimpse. It's this idea of righteousness, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. He talks about the idea of peace and holiness, strive for peace for everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Okay, so it makes it pretty, um, it, it like comes around full circle. I need to endure in order to see the peaceful fruits of righteousness in my life. I want to see the Lord. The Lord wants to see me, right? The Lord wants us to make it. And he knows that the only way we can see him is if we are holy. So how did he make us holy? And this takes us back to Christ, right? It was, it was Christ's example of resisting sin, his perfect righteousness, and then his sacrificial death on the cross. Just like 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we, we have the righteousness of Christ, and that is, that is how we come to see the Lord, right? Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. And so we need the righteousness of Christ. And he, he bought that holiness for us. And positionally, we are righteous in Christ. But God in his mercy is working out that righteousness in our lives right now. He is working that holiness into our lives. And he's using suffering. He's using the trials that we're going through, he's even using our struggle against sin, which is amazing. You know, God can work all things together for good. He's using the struggle that we have against sin to grow our endurance, to grow this discipline, and to grow, ultimately, to to work out the righteousness of Christ. I mean, the righteousness of Christ. We already have the righteousness of Christ. But then it is practically lived out in our lives as we grow in holiness and as we grow closer to the Lord and and closer to the image of Christ. So I, it's just, it puts discipline in a whole new perspective, doesn't it? That God is so intent on our holiness that he is willing to work very strategically as a as a trainer in a gym would format a workout plan for you and for your specific strengths and weaknesses that he knows will get you to that desired end. God is doing the same thing for each one of his children. The next part that he goes into is he's explained God's purposes in our discipline and why we need to endure. So then he goes into, um, what's that going to look like for us to endure? And and we have to cooperate with God in this mission, right? Just like in a workout plan, <laughs> you got to cooperate. <laughs> you don't um, do it. You don't get the benefits. Exactly. <laughs> so how do, what does that look like for us to cooperate? And I love this next section that he, he talks about 
um, beautiful verses, and I've never really viewed them in light of this, but he says, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And, you know, we like, we all like to think of ourselves as, as kind of discouraged and needing uplifting every once in a while, but he's actually saying, you need to be paying attention to this. So just like your trainer realizes your weaknesses and he's um, crafting your workout plan around your weaknesses to strengthen those things. You need to be cooperating with him in those things, which means we need to know the weak parts of our faith. We need to know those parts of our uh, in our lives that make us cringe. Um, those parts of our lives, those areas of our faith that we would say, Ooh, I don't even like to think about that because it just, it, it seems scary to me or that doesn't make sense why God would do it that way. So I'm just going to ignore it. He's saying you cannot ignore the weak parts of your faith because those parts are going to be the very things that make you fall away. The way he describes it here is be put out of joint. So if you have a weak knee, you don't just ignore it and keep on with your workout. You actually tailor your workout for it to strengthen up that part and to strengthen the muscles around it. Because if you don't, that weak knee is going to blow. And you, and, you know. and so he's saying, if we don't own up, own up to the weaknesses in our faith and those parts where we are most prone to doubt, then, then eventually it's actually going to be put out of joint. And God's purpose in discipline is that we would be healed and that those weak parts would be strengthened and those weak parts would be healed. But we have to cooperate in that. Um, and then he says, so he also says, strive for peace and holiness. We already went, went through that part. Um, and then he says, don't let bitterness defile you. He uses the example of Esau. And I think that Esau is a perfect example of this because um, his response to a promise that he had was unbelief. And it showed it showed this lack of faith in God. And what, what am I talking about? I'm talking about, first of all, the birthright. When we think of Esau, a lot of times we go straight to the account of Jacob stealing the blessing from him and, and sneaking in and pretending like he's Esau and tricking Isaac. But what happened before that was totally Esau's fault. He comes in from the field and he's very hungry. He is physically hungry. And it was a reality. It was a physical reality. But he is pretty much the definition of being profane. That's a word that he's going to use later. That he thought a little of his birthright in exchange for something really temporary. Very, very temporary. And that is exactly what we do when we turn back on God and on the promise that he's made for some temporary relief. I feel the temptations of sin so strongly and I just, it would be so much easier if I could just give in. If you do, you are being like Esau and you are selling your birthright for a temporary relief from a physical reality it is hard to resist sin but but that is the the ultimate display of unbelief and so 
he gave in and it, I mean, it, it connects it to the immorality of Esau, which we see from the Genesis passage. It connects that immorality to Esau's unbelief and that his lack of, of faith in, in God. And then later on in the passage, you think, well, it, you know, it really looks like he's repenting because he's, he's just crying out to his father. No, no, no. Bless me. Bless me. I really do. I really do want the blessing. But he had proven by the steps of his life up to that point that he actually despised those things, that they were not what was important to him. So uh, don't be like that. Don't let that root of bitterness defile you and, and cause you to give up on the promise. So then he's going to actually compare um, in another way this idea of heavenly versus earthly, the eternal versus the temporal, the the tangible and senses, um, having to do with the senses versus faith. So he says in verse 18, you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Now these things, I wouldn't describe them as things that may be touched, but I, I think that maybe more the idea that he's getting at is these were sent, these were experiences that the people of Israel could, could um, experience with their senses. I don't know what the, I don't know what the actual adjective is to use that for that, but um they could hear the trumpet and the voice. They could see and feel the fire. They could see the darkness. They knew we better not touch that mountain. And so this is a very specific reference to that time when God is speaking to them and he's giving them the covenant. And they say, yes, all that the Lord says we're going to do, don't let, you know, like they're worried that they're going to die. And he says that is actually the right um, posture for, to have toward God because our God is a consuming fire. Um, we're going to get to that at the end of the, of this chapter, but those things were, could be experienced with the senses. And from our standpoint, we would say, how could you then turn around straight from that and have the golden calf incident? How could anybody experience that at the mountain and turn away from God like they did? But he's saying, actually, the stakes are a lot higher for us because, The promises that we've been given and the the display of the glory of God that is offered to us is so much greater than even just fire and thunder and a trumpet and and everything at the mountain. So the what he the list that he gives of what we have come to is Mount Zion rather than Mount Sinai and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So these things we have to accept by faith. But he's saying they actually carry even more weight. Not obviously the God's first display of himself to the people carried uh, responsibility. But he's saying just because we cannot experience with our senses God's message to us right now does not mean it's not real and does not mean that it is not um, 
held out to us and that we must uh, grab onto it by faith and hold on for all for the rest of our lives. So that's the, that's the application. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This, this takes us all the way back to chapter 2 um, and the, the comparison of if you listen to those um, messengers, how much more should you listen to Christ? If they were responsible for the message that they heard, how much more responsible are we? And so he talks about that. And I'm not going to get all into, into this. This is a, a pretty deep Old Testament passage talking about things being shaken and that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so therefore let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I think that's interesting because this is in the New Testament. We've talked before about the faulty impression that people have that the Old Testament God was one of wrath and consuming fire and that the New Testament God is all love and peace and and joy and, and happiness. And it's a false dichotomy to make. God is God and he has been from eternity past and he will be to eternity future. And so he is today a God of wrath and he is a consuming fire. And he was back then a God of love. You know, he, he's, he is all of these things all the time. He is love. He is mercy. But we cannot ignore the fact that our God deserves reverence and awe. Our God deserves faith. Um, and that for us to turn away from him in unbelief is the ultimate act of arrogance. So, after talking about the, the importance of having a heavenly mindset, that we can't just depend on things that our senses can feel and experience, but that our faith is on something that is a true reality, but we've not experienced yet, he says, however, that does not mean that it does not have implications for your life right now. And we've heard the idea that, oh, that guy, was he was just so heavenly minded that he wasn't any earthly good. And the author of Hebrews is saying that's not possible. That the more heavenly minded you are, the more you fix your gaze on Christ and on these these heavenly realities that are true today, um, the more earthly good you're going to be. And so we don't have time. I'm not I'm not here to preach a sermon on each of these application points. But the, each of these things we should connect back to the fact that if I have faith in what's to come. If I am like Jesus and I'm setting my hope on the joy that's before me, that will look like this in the way that I live. And so we can just basically go down and list these things. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. We will show brotherly love. We will show hospitality to strangers. We will um, we will share in the suffering of our brothers and sisters in Christ only if our eyes are set on Jesus and our hope is set in him and not in anything earthly. If I have, you know, if, if my brother in Christ goes to prison because of his faith, I show my faith in Jesus by reaching out to him and sharing in his suffering. I show my unbelief and my uh, commitment to 
relieving the temporary suffering just as Esau did when I push away from him because I, I don't want to be associated with somebody who's suffering right now because I might be thrown in prison too or I might experience the same thing that he's experiencing. So he's saying, the more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you're going to be. Um, the next one, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Okay, so the, this is another one. Like if, if I am setting my hope on the things to come, then that will show itself in my sexual purity and the decisions that I make. And I think that this is in our, in our culture really one of the main tests that we know the intense temptation to sin in this area. And if we give in to that for a temporary relief, we are showing that our mind is not set on heavenly realities. Um, the next thing he says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. If I am setting my mind on the presence of the Lord with me right now, even though I can't tangibly feel him or see him, if my mind is set on these heavenly realities, it will change the way that I view um, money and covetousness. You know, I won't be greedy. I won't be trying to grasp at earthly things because I have God and, and he's all that I need. Um, the next one he says is, don't be led away by strange doctrines. So he takes a little bit of time talking about our, the relationship that we should have to the leaders who, who originally spoke the word to us. We show our faith in Christ when we, um, when we accept the word that is given to us with humility and when we reverence those who give the word to us, um, it is a sign of humility and a sign of submission to God when we humbly accept his word, we gratefully accept his word, and we're not trying to always push against it and always question and always be that guy that's just like, you know, the burr in the pastor's cell. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, ugh. you know, I think that we all kind of know of Christians like that, that it's like, they always have to have, have you know, play devil's advocate for the pastor. And it's like, oh, if, if he talks about later that we should we should treat our leaders and that they can lead us with joy and not with grief because actually that's more profitable for us. But he says he his thesis of this whole section on not being uh, led away by strange doctrines is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If that's the case, then somebody's not going to come up with a new doctrine about Christ. Right, And so if you hear these people touting that, hey, I have something new, you've never heard this before, that's a clear sign that you shouldn't pay any attention to it. Um, wow, this next section is huge, and he takes a couple rabbit trails with it. I don't know that we have a lot of time to, to go down the rabbit trails, but pretty much it, it starts with this idea of being devoted to specific foods, which I'm, I'm assuming was one of the strange doctrines that they were being um, confronted with that, that um, he's trying to say, look, don't, don't even accept that. You just stick to what you've heard about Christ, remain faithful to him and what the word says, and don't be led away by these people trying to pull you away with food. So then he takes this um, detour in talking about the bodies of animals whose blood is brought outside the camp. 
those were sin offerings that were not able to be eaten. That's um, described in the law. They ha- their bodies cannot be eaten by the priests. Their bodies are burned outside the camp. And it's as if the sins of the people have been put on this animal, and so they're no longer worth ingesting. Well, he says, actually, Christ has Christ has gone outside the camp for us. He's taken that reproach. And so then, in this beautiful... I mean, it's like he can tie everything back to a devotional thought. Um, and he says, so then let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. And it comes back to that idea that you are going to, you are going to have to bear reproach if you stay faithful to Christ. This world is not going to be your friend. They're not going to praise you if you're faithful to Christ. So look at it that you're going outside the camp with him. He's out there. He bore your reproach. Go outside the camp with him and bear the reproach that he endured. So then he says, uh, another thing that if, if our minds and our hearts are set on heavenly realities, then we will be offering pleasing sacrifices to the Lord. Now, we're not offering animals because the blood of Jesus was offered once for all for our sins. And so the sacrifices that he speaks of are sacrifices of praise to God, fruit, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And also do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So he says, you know, you guys seem really intent on this idea that I need to bring something to God. I need to, I need to, be bringing this sacrifice to God. I feel empty if I'm not. He says, rely on the sacrifice of Christ. And if you want to bring a sacrifice to God, bring a sacrifice of lips that are praising his name. Bring a sacrifice of doing good and sharing with, with others the things that you have. These sacrifices are always pleasing to God. He's always going to accept them. And then he ends the section talking about asking for prayer for them. And I love, I love that. He is obviously a spiritual leader over these people, and yet he humbles himself to their same level and says, I need you guys to pray for me. I'm praying for you. I need you to pray for me. I need help from the Spirit to endure in the way that I've described here. I am not above you. I'm not, it's not like I've reached some plane where I've arrived and I'm just trying to, you know, preach at you guys. We are in this together. We all need endurance. We all need to keep our eyes on Christ. And we all need the Spirit's help in order to do this. So he's he's asking for prayer for them. And then he, he the very last part of the book, well, not the very last part, but um, verses 20 and 21 are a beautiful example of a prayer that he's praying for them. So he asks for their prayers for him. And then he turns around and he gives a prayer for them. And I think that this prayer is a great way for us to end this whole, this whole section. We've gone through a lot of like, oh, okay, we went from big, heady stuff to hold the marriage bed in honor. Um, you know, very practical things that we're like, okay, yeah, now this is like a do, 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 do section, right? And we can feel uncomfortable with those type of sections because we're like, wait a second. I thought it wasn't about my works. I thought it was all about what Christ has done. Why can they come back and now say that we have to do something? Well, we have to remember that this is the same God that we're dealing with. His standard of holiness has not changed, but he is now helping us to achieve this holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so God, in his mercy, is 
giving us this discipline to work out this resistance of sin. But what I want to leave us with is what the author of Hebrews leaves us with, is the fact that God is the one who is actually equipping us to do it. So he says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he says, think about the fact that God is so powerful, he could bring Jesus back from the dead. That's the power that he is working in us. Think about the fact that he is the great shepherd of the sheep. He's going to lead his sheep. And even when we start to stray, think about these passages of the shepherd, you know, John 10, um, Psalm 23, the, this beautiful imagery of our shepherd leading us, even when we're straying. Um, the parable of the shepherd who goes out to find that one sheep who is lost. That is the God that we serve. That is what Christ did when he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so don't, don't become so um, fearful in your own inability because you have the God who raised Christ from the dead and you have a great shepherd who is helping you in this. And what he's helping you to do, he's equipping you with everything good so that you can do his will. He's working in us what is pleasing in his sight. And all of this, obviously, is through Jesus Christ. He is the author and um, perfecter of our faith, and he's the one that we're keeping our eyes on. Well, thank you, Jamie. This has been an encouraging study. And I would say, let's put the truth into boots, but I mean, you just did that for us. <laughs> the entire of this episode was that. I have been blessed beyond measure by your study, and I know others have too. Thank you so much, Kathleen. <laughs> so if you are listening and want um, some more encouragement, I challenge you to go back and study Hebrews yourself. I mean, Jamie's giving you a good framework, but go plug in all the little pieces yourself and learn more about the truth you can get from the book of Hebrews. <laughs>